Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. I am your host, Arden Castle, and this week's episode comes from our People and Places collection. If you love visuals, I suggest checking out our YouTube channel for the video version of this interview. Enjoy! Hello and welcome. This is Health Promotion Practices Author Interviews, and my name is Arden Castle. Each episode will explore a recently published article and its author. This week, I am joined with Dr. Aditi Srivastav, author of Moderating the Effects of Adverse Childhood Experiences to Address Inequities in Tobacco-Related Risk Behaviors, which was published in January 2020, and the Empower Action Model, a framework for preventing adverse childhood experiences by promoting health, equity, and well-being across the lifespan, which was published in November 2019. So this episode is focused on her professional career, which is just one part of a three-part series with Dr. Aditi Shavastav. Tune into our other episodes to hear more about her and our other authors. And without further ado, welcome Dr. Aditi Shavastav. How are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well, definitely. So you are currently working for the Children's Trust of South Carolina. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do there and their mission? Sure. So the Children's Trust of South Carolina is a statewide agency that's focused on the prevention of child abuse and neglect. And we know that in order to prevent abuse and neglect, we must promote health and well-being. And so our mission and vision is really focused around making sure that every child, every family, every community has what it needs to succeed. We're actually in the process of updating our mission and vision Mostly also because we know that since we were originally legislated, so we were legislated in the early 80s, I believe, to be the prevention agency of South Carolina, we've learned so much about brain science. and We've learned so much about early childhood development. So we know that abuse and neglect really doesn't happen in silos. And so that's really where public health specifically begins to play a role. And so I actually created my own position. I am the director of research at Children's Trust. And it's a really unique role, one, because I'm the first person to have the role, but also it's a research position in a nonprofit setting. So as a director of research, I lead the South Carolina Adverse Childhood Experiences Initiative, as well as Kids Count South Carolina, which are both research-based initiatives focused on preventing adversity through community-based approaches, as well as through good data and policy change. And I also work internally with a lot of our teams to understand research and translate evidence into practice in terms of delivering our programs more effectively, working with coalitions, and even thinking about the way in which we want the future of the organization to move. That is super exciting. So going from something that was mandated or legislatively created and then creating your own position and being the first person to hold this and doing so much for a community organization as a researcher. That's really exciting. I was also listening to another podcast that you were on in an interview with Straight Talk in 2019. You called yourself a self-dubbed child health advocacy lover and warrior for kids. That's amazing. And has your calling always been towards children's health? Obviously, you're doing that in your position now. But what really drew you into public health? Yeah, so that's a great question. And something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. So I think that public health can really be the field of our future. And it 
can help us envision what our country would look like when all systems, all communities, and all people have equitable opportunities to succeed. I kind of stumbled into child health earlier on in my career, right out of college. And there's just something so, I think, special and promising about kids, right? Because a lot of them are not they're not, they're not deciding the types of communities they grow up in or the household that they grow up in. They really are dealt cards. And then we as a society, it's our job to help them make sure they can play that game of life well. And so I think I was really attracted to children's health specifically because I believe in prevention. And I think that it is much easier to prevent earlier in life and develop good habits and practices and a strong foundation than to try. And not to say it's not possible, but it's much harder later in life. So I really just think that a lot of the things we talk about, even in public health and other fields, such as social justice, equitable systems, those things are much more achievable to me amongst kids and setting up the future to succeed as opposed to trying to dismantle things and change things later in life. Absolutely. Definitely setting the groundwork and doing that upstream work in order to help people who are working further downstream because you know, obviously both are important, but I think that's really, really interesting that you've had this revelation that we really need to be working with kids because we're creating the environments for them to be successful. So as you became more involved with public health, why did you choose to get your doctorate? So I, that takes me back all the way, I think, to undergrad. So I am a proud University of Virginia graduate. And one of the pieces of advice I gave to a lot of current students, as well as young people that may just be interested in the field, is that you don't have to follow this traditional path for public health. I think that there's so many disciplines that make up this field, and we're seeing that again in real time with the pandemic. But I was an American government um, and politics major. And I loved learning about the history and the policy focus, as well as how politics inherently shape everything that we interact with. And so when I was getting out of undergrad, I thought about the things that excite me. And I think the things that excite me the most is that hope for change, regardless of how hard and daunting it can be at times. And so for a while, I thought that I was going to go to law school. And when I started thinking about that, I realized the one thing that excited me a lot about law school was this whole idea of health and how everyone should have access to optimal health. And so, you know, I began to explore, and at that time I had moved to the DC area. And so I began to explore a lot of different job opportunities. And so I landed my first gig at the National Institutes of Health. And that really just opened my eyes to how robust and complex the public health field is. So you could be working for government, you can be working for a nonprofit, you can be working for academia, but there are all things that can relate back to public health. And so I decided to pursue my master's in public health in specifically health policy. And that was a really exciting time because the Supreme Court was deciding on the Affordable Care Act. So we actually got to have the secretary of HHS or Health and Human Services come talk to us about why the Affordable Care Act or also known as Obamacare was so important. And so you begin to just really see how all of these different systems and fields have to collaborate and work together for programs and policies and public health to work. And so I really liked that. I like that you're not wedded to a specific topic. You're not wedded to a specific outcome. You can really do a lot with public health. And so about five or six years in where I felt like I had gotten a really good grasp of policy. So I got to spend a lot of time doing advocacy around health services research, as well as um, for PD on behalf of pediatricians, which was really cool. 
I realized that there was a, a need for young people, and I consider myself young, though you're definitely much younger than me, for young people to really take on more bold leadership roles. And so it came to the point of, so do I continue to work and build up that advocacy space? Or do I move into research where there's a real opportunity to do research that informs advocacy? And so that's when I became really interested in a doctorate in public health. And, you know, one of the big kind of questions and back and forths I had was, could I pursue what we call a DRPH or a PhD? Originally, I had applied for the DRPH, and unfortunately, by the time that I accepted at the University of South Carolina, they had phased out that program. So I ultimately ended up getting my PhD, but the intent behind getting it was always to be able to understand research, do good research, but make sure it's meaningful enough to make a difference. And I think that you see that a lot, even in some of the papers that have been published in health promotion practice. That is so exciting to see how this kind of policy beginning kind of transformed the way that you did your master's in public health, but still thinking about policy and then into your full evolution into public health as a doctorate. I think that that's really exciting. And after getting your doctorate, I know that now you're working for like a community organization. Why didn't you choose the academic route? That's a good question. So I, again, going back to kind of what drives me, what drives me is seeing social change and being able to help communities and people understand and use data and research. I think that while academia was incredible in shaping my experience in a doctoral program, I think one of the things that we often talk about is that whole idea of an ivory tower, right? And that's very real. Unfortunately, sometimes the way higher education is set up is we do good research and then it gets stuck behind a paywall. I mean, I always joke that I can't even access some of my own publications that I publish because I'm not in an academic setting. And oftentimes that research is not accessible or understandable or translated into a way that practitioners and other community folks can use it. One of the things that I always harp on is that if you think dissemination is a peer-reviewed publication, I want you to change your mind. That's not, that's one form of building up the literature and the science, and that's a very important piece. But things even like this website, Health Promotion Practice Notes, all of these other channels of taking that research and turning it into short snapshots of information that the public can understand is what's so important. And so it was that kind of cross section of like, I want to continue to do research, but I also want to make sure that my research is practical and meaningful that led me to wanting to be not in academia. I have a lot of great partners and colleagues in academia, and I certainly, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. You see kind of the benefits of, of being in academia, but then you also see a lot of opportunity being in a nonprofit setting, mostly around the fact that you can build your own strategy. You don't have the same constraints applying for tenure. You are able to really ask the public, what would you like me to study? How can I better build a research base for programs that you're implementing? And I think most importantly, your research doesn't sit on a shelf. And I know that might be controversial, but I do believe that a lot of times we end up doing research for the sake of maybe building up our own credibility. And again, as a young researcher, that's important, but it's not always about publications. It's about what you do with your expertise and ability to decipher science to make it meaningful for the public. And a really good example right now is where we're seeing all of the police violence protests, as well as coronavirus pandemic, 
our jobs as researchers should be to help people identify this is good data, this is not real data, this is what the research showed, this is what we need in order for us to do good research on that. And so I think a lot of those discussions end up happening more so in a community setting because you just have more access to community needs and people that want to talk to you. Absolutely. And I know that you mentioned doing research for the sake of a tenure and whatnot and being able to connect directly with the community. And community-based research is so important and should be done across the board, regardless of if you're an academic institution. But do you think your research has been different because of this freedom and the fact that you've created your own position and the fact that you've been able to publish 15 articles in the last four years, which is (laughs) outstanding? I mean, not just for the sake of, you know, just growing your own CV, but the fact that you're on the ground and able to do this research in a position that you created, which is to do research. I think that that's absolutely just so exciting and warranted that you would have that much research under your belt. I appreciate you saying that because again, as much as I love being in the non-academic setting, there are days. And one thing that I would tell you know, especially students that are watching this, is that you can really be an incredible productive researcher in a nonprofit setting. It doesn't mean it doesn't come with challenges. And one of the biggest things has kind of been the, I don't want to say, I don't know if it's judgment, that's the right word, but assumptions that are made oftentimes about research. Because like I mentioned, most nonprofits will contract with the university to conduct research. They don't normally have PhD educated folks in their actual organization. And so one of the challenges has been folks that may be in that more traditional academic mindset that sometimes may imply that community research is a little bit less than. And that's not the case at all. I think that there's some really incredible work going on in non-academic settings. I think that there are other challenges, like I don't have access to an IRB. So I have to always make sure that I'm working with someone who does in order to make sure that my research is rigorous and protects human subjects, especially if they're being used for conversations that are often really hard to have, especially around abuse and neglect. In terms of kind of how it could have benefited, so I especially, I like the fact that I'm not necessarily as I see a lot of my friends and colleagues really stressed about the tenure process, and I don't feel that same stress. So I feel that that freedom in terms of maybe the promotion route has been a benefit where I can spend more time looking at different types of ways in which um, we can conduct research and how our research can be funded. That being said, being the director of research, you're not just doing traditionally research. Being in a nonprofit setting, you will always have that other And sometimes that other means putting together PowerPoint presentations or putting together an Excel spreadsheet of data and a lot of other more project management tasks. And so there may be some days where I'm like, oh, I wish I could just work on my research, but I have all these other things to do as a member of a nonprofit that could sometimes be time consuming and a little bit challenging. But I would say generally, yes, I think the freedom that I've gotten to study what I want to study. Again, I think that's also because of the field of public health, right? So Even though Children's Trust of South Carolina's focus is prevention and abuse and neglect specifically, one of the things that I love is that I'm not an outcomes person, right? So you'll never hear me talk about like, I'm an obesity researcher or I'm an HIV researcher. I think that's really great for the experts that have really built their craft. I care more about how we get there. And so what's been really nice is that as long as we can relate back why a certain research question is related to the prevention of abuse and neglect, we can do it. So that's been a really cool experience as well. 
So after having talked about your professional work, I'm curious, you identify as a South Asian woman. How has that impacted your opportunities and the way that you interact with public health in general? I think that's a really good question. I think that my identity as a person of color, South Asian woman, Asian American, you know, lots of different ways to talk about it, absolutely affects the way I think, the way that I write, the way that I collaborate and connect with other scholars in the field. I think that it has been a real blessing to have moved down to the American South to really reflect on my identity and the role that it plays in my career and will continue to play. So as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the DC area. And so there you have a very diverse population and you kind of have an anomaly where you have people of all different colors, faiths, backgrounds that are really doing well for lack of a better term. And so it's a little bit of a bubble. It's a great place to be raised because you see people that look like you that have really achieved a level of success that you can be inspired by or aspire to. But, you know, moving to South Carolina, I realized that that is not the case for a lot of America. And so I think that it was definitely a culture shock moving down here, but it really ignited a passion for me to want to help fellow Black, Indigenous, people of color in terms of getting all of the opportunities that they deserve, and also not only opportunities, but being at the table to make important decisions. So I guess my identity as a South Asian woman helps ground my belief that racism is a public health issue. I think racism underlies several public health issues and that in order for us to really achieve optimal health for every single person in this country, we have to address racism. And one of the things that I talk about and I've learned a lot from Dr. Kendi, who's a scholar in this space, is that when we talk about racism, I don't mean that someone said a racist slur or, you know, perpetuate a stereotype. When I talk about racism, especially in my own work as well, I'm thinking about it very unemotionally almost, very systemically. How is it that our structures, institutions, systems, things that we interact with every day, how are they built and intentionally built to benefit some over others? I also recognize that the problematic model minority myth that has been created specifically for Asian Americans, which really have for the longest time pitted us against other minority groups. One of my passions is to, as a non-Black person of color, make sure that I am elevating the voices of so many of my Black colleagues because they have been kept down for so long. And so I think that's a really good question. I think that it, I think that my identity comes out every day, even when I'm thinking about the types of collaborations or research questions, I want to be very careful that I'm asking and talking about a lot of public health problems while honoring and preserving what we know has led to some of these challenges and issues. And when I say honoring, I mean honoring all of the people before us that have worked so hard to even get us here. I'm thankful that you have given us your time because as another woman, as another Asian woman, we don't often see ourselves in research or as researchers. And so I really applaud you for looking at the table and asking who's missing and being intentional about elevating those voices. As a young professional entering the field, do you have any advice for any young professional or specifically a young professional of color? Yeah. So my general advice would be try everything when you are starting off in public health. Don't get so hung up on trying to build up a specific 
content area. That'll come with time as you build collaborations and as you, you know, depending on where you're working or who you're working with within an academic or non-academic setting. I think that school as well as early career is a great time to get on projects that you may not even know that much about. That's kind of how I landed into the health communication space. I was following this fellow colleagues of mine's work, and she did a lot of work around public opinion. And while I didn't necessarily have the capacity to do that at my university setting, once I moved into Children's Trust, I just introduced myself to her and then was able to find a way to collect data on abuse and neglect, specifically public opinions about child abuse and neglect. And before I knew it, I was able to connect with her and she worked on that paper with me. And that was just a full circle moment. You have to be willing to just try new things. And it's okay if you have publications or presentations about a a wide range of things, because that just opens up more opportunities down the road. And I think that also goes back to, and there may be some people that disagree with me here, but I don't think that you should necessarily also wed yourself with an outcome, right? As public health is moving more towards this kind of systemic life course, multi-level perspective. I think the questions are turning more into how are we getting to this problem, not what is the problem. And so while traditionally so many grants have been focused on outcomes, I think that it's always a benefit to be able to say, I want to work with you. And I know that you care a lot about preventing cervical cancer. I care a lot about making sure that we do the right things early in childhood. But then I can also turn around and talk to someone else who's really interested in preventing heart disease and ask the same question from the early childhood angle. So that would be my advice is to really think about more of the process of why we or how we get there as opposed to a specific outcome. In terms of advice for a young person of color, I think that we're seeing in very real time, I don't know if you all are familiar with the hashtag black in the ivory, but there was also brown in the ivory. I mean, the institutional inequities are still very real in higher education. I think the best thing that you could do is to choose a school based on your mentor, not the prestige of the school. And I say prestige because, you know, in the long term, that's all kind of relative. And also really spending some time getting to know how that department conducts or values research. I think that going to the University of South Carolina was the best decision I could have ever made. And it was because I just really hit it off with my mentors who made sure that even when I had some really not so great experiences with other professors saying problematic or acting problematically towards me that were perpetuated based on the color of my skin, that was very obvious. I had a community that would still continue to support me and uplift me and make sure that you know, I keep my eye on the prize. And I think that finding good mentors is probably the best way that a young professional of color can set themselves up for success. And when I say mentorship, you know, we can talk about it in terms of a doctoral program, but I also believe that you need to continue to have those people, your people, even early into your career. And so for me, I'm lucky that I'm still in touch with both my co-chairs. I talk to them regularly and their advice and guidance has moved away from fulfilling a doctoral program to now, what is your five-year, 10-year plan? And I still go back to them when things get difficult. And so really finding those people that will celebrate successes with you, but also be there to pick you up when things get hard is so important. And really spending the time to cultivate those relationships would be the advice that I would give. Excellent. Thank you. I think those are all some really big thoughts and good food for thought and definitely very inspiring to know that someone 
who may not look like a lot of people in research has been able to be so successful. I think that you're a great model and I think that it's really exciting to get, you know, even a couple tidbits of advice from you. As we close up our interview, we're going to do a quick lightning round of about five questions. Just really quick, fun things to get to know you a little bit more on a personal level. So if you could learn any language, what would it be? French. And what is your favorite season? Fall. And are you a cat person or a dog person? Absolutely a dog person. (laughs) Perfect. If you could have any other career other than what you have now, what would it be? I think I'd go into broadcast journalism. What is something you read for fun and really enjoyed recently? I recently finished reading Homegoing, and it's an incredible book that tells the story of a generation of a family over time, and it starts in Ghana and ends in Ghana, and it's incredible, and I highly recommend it. Interesting. I'll have to add that to my reading list. Thank you, Dr. Sarvasa, for joining us today, and thank you all for listening in. If you'd like to find out more about our guest this week, you can reach her here. And you can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook for more author interviews. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.